something a little different. So I've been studying Buddhism for a while, and there's a number of texts that allow kind of a play-at-home self-study. And so I kind of wanted to explore doing the play-at-home self-study uh, on this program. So I'm going to be starting a new series called the Why series, and that's one because it sounds like why, as in why are we here, what is the nature of reality, you know, like asking the question why, and then also because it has a nice parallel to the X series, which is prim primarily based on uh, scientific understanding through basic principles, right? So X series, we look at foundational scientific principles and where they come from, and the Y series is maybe applying those scientific principles into some philosophical stretches, you know, understanding the why of what we study in the X series. That's my thought anyway. I mean, that's very motivated. But um, today we're going to be looking at parallel foundations of Buddhism and modern scientific theory. I thought that this would be an excellent place to start in kind of bridging the gap between philosophical mythological ideas, the, hum the nature of the human experience, with scientific principles that we study to control that human experience, right? We, so we study science in order to exercise some control over our reality, and we give ourselves the illusion that understanding the nature of that reality provides us some sort of godlike role. You know, it gives us meaning because now I can create a light, or I can heal the sick, or I can have all these these powers because of my understanding of what reality is, but it doesn't necessarily fill up that hole that we all seem to have about why we exist and what we're supposed to be doing and why everything is suffering, which is essentially why we write, it's why art happens. So, so this idea of philosophy is providing the why, science providing the what, and then branching off into that creative aspect of the nature of how those things interact, that relationship is very interesting to me. So this will be the first step in that series, and we are going to be, the foundational understanding of that relationship is really comparing what we know to why we know it and how we can use it, and that's the nature of today's discussion. So we're gonna take a small departure into the world of philosophy, and recent events from a number of the things I've been reading and the number of conversations I've had, particularly in the political arena, have convinced me that there is a value for religion and philosophy in modern life, especially in a modern life that's not really integrated. We're continuously asked to provide value, monetary, physical, we're producing things, but we don't seem to be living a reflective life. We don't seem to understand why we exist or how being human can be fulfilling. We consume a lot, but we still have this black hole, most of us anyway, we still have this black hole of misunderstanding and ignorance that kind of just festers and creates all this suffering. And I think that's a, a huge motivator for why we seem to have so much sexism and racism and cruelty and environmental degradation. And, you know, I think the root of most of our experience comes from this black hole. And I want to explore that. 
Though the following summation and commentary are based on the Dalai Lama's and Thubten Chodron's co-authored book, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. And this is the fifth in a series of, I believe, seven books from the Compendium of Wisdom and Compassion series. Now, these books are tough. <laughs> so, so I've been reading one through four. Number five has taken me quite a bit of time to kind of get comfortable with. These are very technical books. And they build on each other. So it's very difficult to just sort of open book five and automatically have all of this historical understanding, mythological understanding, burr. So books one through four, I mean, it starts with the foundations of Buddhist practice and kind of moves through historical understanding, uh, religious and mythological understanding, meditative stabilization, like all the nitty gritty details of, of doing Buddhism. And then this book starts to get into some of the more advanced topics. I do, so I have read all the four books before this one, as well as the Dalai Lama produced a standalone work which allies Buddhist philosophy with some of our conventional scientific understanding in very specific ways. So he doesn't comment on the modern scientific understanding in this book, he comments on the Hindu understanding of science as it was 2,000 years ago. So he's just presenting the historical foundation for some of these mythological co concepts and presenting them alongside some scientific ideas, but he's not making a comment on modern science because obviously he can't do that, right? He doesn't know them. But he does know the historical, uh, mythological, and, and Hinduistic concepts that built some of these foundational ideas of Buddhism. Um, additionally, Thubten Chodron has produced uh, an advanced topics in Lam Rim. That's the name of a, another book. And that is a much more gritty idea of the hows and whys of meditative stabilization, the ideas of what Buddhism actually can provide as far as easing mental suffering, and the, the details of what it means to develop single-pointed concentration and meditative stabilization as a thing, right? So a lot of times we hear about what meditative stabilization is or that you should meditate and, you know, it's a big thing in psychology that people should be mindful and, and that that can improve your outlook and your state of being. And I totally agree. But if you want to get to the heart of things, if you want to understand why it works, not just the westernized pop psychology of what neurology tells us works, you got to go to the source, in, in my opinion. So that's what got me interested in this in the first place, was the, the pop idea of, oh, I can sit for 20 minutes and listen to a soothing voice or some chimes. Great. That's not real. That's not real meditation. That's calming. That's cool. But when you start looking at like uh, Thubten Chodron's work in the Lam Rim stabilization and you start doing some of the Dharma talks, you realize that the Western concept of meditation and concentration is very different from the technical terms of meditation and concentration from a religious and ethical aspect. And that ethical aspect is something that I would really like to explore going forward. Anyway, so that's all the foundation for what this little article is going to explore, and I hope to kind of get into some of the self-study aspects later on. But I'm not going to mention any more. 
we're just going to work with Sansara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature kind of in the middle of the chapter where I was studying because I can. So let us begin. So the Mahayana Buddhism Sutras and the Kalakakra Tantra reference something called space particles. And these particles function very similar to our current concepts of atoms in the modern scientific paradigm, but they're the religious and philosophical mythological particles of Hinduism from about 2,500, well, about 3,000 years ago. So these particles in the mythology are seeds of world systems. So they're the beginning of worlds in some Buddhist mythology. And they arise, they disintegrate, they remain dormant in basically a random fluctuation. Now, a modern parallel that this reminded me of may be something like the quantum field, where we have particles or energy probabilities arise, disintegrate, or remain stable in random patterns kind of beneath what we consider the fabric of empty space. And these quantum fluctuations are only visible when they interact with each other in specific ways that result in the harmonization of energies, giving rise to strings or quantum dimensions that are consistent with our, our string theory. So in the Buddhist mythology, these energies also only, quote unquote, exist when they form relationships with each other and collapse the, the wave function. The collapse of the wave, fu wave function is the generation of a relationship which results in the material building blocks of the external universe, both in Buddhism and in string theory, as well as I understand it. Now, these material building blocks of the universe do not exist independently from one another. Right? We have a tendency to think that molecules and atoms are these inherently existent, independent things just hanging out, but they're not. Right? String theory teaches us that there are many folded up dimensions, and the relationship between those folded up dimensions or energies causes the behavior that we associate with atomic or molecular theory. That's the, the rise of our chemical or our physical relationships. And that those interactions define their existence and their shape. And we'll get back to shape because the shape of proteins, for example, is one of the determinants for genetic transmittal. That's how we get biochemistry is the shape of proteins, the shape of light, things like that. And as these relationships and shapes are impermanent and constantly changing, both within themselves and between them, right, intra and intermolecularly, as well as on a bigger scale, right, communities change within themselves, as well as have interactions outside of themselves from a holistic standpoint. All of these systems are subject to evolution and natural laws of cause and effect, with each attribute and whole arising and altering as a condition of its internal and external environment it becomes a thing, right? As an internal system is generated, you have the ability to interact with external things, but you have both. And the change in an internal system can impact external, and the change in an external environment can impact your internal systems, right? Look at cancer, for example. It's a great example. We know this environment to be without inherent existence. This is a, a Buddhist philosophy because each component of our outside world changes and adapts to every other component in a constant dance of environment, sentience, and growth, dependent not only on the constituent parts, but on the system as a whole moving through space-time as we and the rest of sentience perceives and changes it. So this deviates from our scientific assumptions, because in science, 
we always want to be that impartial third-party observer. But as we know from some of the experiments in quantum mechanics, you can't, right? Perceiving the system alters the system. It collapses the wave function. And we'll talk a little bit about Schrodinger's cat and some of those very um, accessible and, and common experiments, right? Like the idea of entangled particles, where if you measure one particle, the other particle automatically collapses its wave function, regardless of distance, direction, time, whatever. Now that shouldn't be possible under our under current understanding of communications, but it would be possible if in fact these were systems that were the same system, that you're just collapsing a wave function into a particular pattern. And we'll use light as a, as a metaphor for that, because of course, why wouldn't you? Um, but as the first Dalai Lama questions in the treasury of knowledge, if one asks, this manifold world which has been explained, the environment and sentient beings living in it, where does it come from? It does not arise without cause or from a discordant cause because it arises occasionally, and it does not arise from the creator god, Ispara, and so forth, because it arises gradually. As it says this, if one asks, from what does it arise? The manifold world of the environment and the sentient beings living in it arise from karma. So karma here is a technical term with a very specific meaning. In the West, we tend to view karma as do good deeds and get good things, a sort of pay-to-play experience promising happiness and wealth through begrudging virtue. However, comma, uh, karma here is a simple law of cause and effect with afflictions and ethical behaviors stamped into a constantly flowing mind stream that wanders through bodies like a great subtle wind. It's yours, but it's not just yours. It's a shared experience of consequence moving from life to life to life. It's the collapse of the wave function that impacts many other relationships all around it. But this idea of shared cause and effect influencing the environment and individual in a constantly changing system sounds a lot like what? Anyone? Very good. That's evolution. So our understanding of genetic diversity, adaptation, and growth, at least from a scientific standpoint, is deeply rooted in the idea of descent with modification, or evolution. This is the idea that our genes may be modified by environmental or biochemical conditions to better survive in the existing ecology of the organism. These modifications may happen all at once. It's called a jump discontinuity to survive in extreme situations or they may happen gradually over many millennia to build a species most able to survive on a planet that grows by millions of years instead of decades. I almost think of evolution as a translator between planetary and cosmological timescales and organic or living timescales. And does this sound at all similar to our Buddhist friends? Uh, we can show that mothers and fathers under stress can pass those biochemical markers to their children that people's homes are reflected in their very bones with the unique mineral content in their air and earth built in the very fabric of our bodies. We are repositories for the physical and emotional choices of our communities on a molecular scale, right? We're collapsing the wave function in molecular genetics. And this sounds a lot like karma. But that's just the physical world. 
So science also has quite a bit to say on our ethical and social choices reflecting changes in the national, natural world. So it goes the other way. Not only can the environment influence our bodies to change the energies and shapes that it makes up, but we can impact our planet. And our species seems to be very good at that. Global climate change, for example. So humans seem to be this unique interface between heaven and earth, physical and non-physical, energy and matter. We seem to be kind of a transition zone between all of those relationships. Our very structure is a representation of various life forms and karmic choices that could occur on a sentient planet. And our communal nature and interaction with other life forms seems to have built new relationships and interactions with the earth itself. We cause earthquakes with fracking, create underground brine rivers, pollute air and water with chemicals that have no natural parallel for destruction or degradation. They are permanent, if you will. For example, the PFAS, PFOA uh, current health advisory is, a, is an important one for this. So PFAS and PFOA don't go away. You can sort of change their forms with treatment, but those change, those shorter chains are actually more dangerous to human health and the environment than if you were to leave them alone as these long chains. And you can get them into forms like hydrofluoric acid, but why do you want hydrofluoric acid? <laughs> like that's even harder uh, to manage because it's this incredibly powerful acid that just eats everything that it touches. And they can't be bioaccumulated um, for remediation. They can be bioaccumulated in our body systems, but then they just cause cancer, right? It's not like we can accumulate them in a tuber and then burn the tuber and it's done. No, these things, they go up into the air, they come back down in the rain as hydrofluoric acid, and then they're right back in the soil. There's, there's nothing that, that is able to control these chemicals. So Buddhism says that impermanent aggregates such as humans, sentients who arise and fall away, depending on all manner of causes and conditions from their environment, could not create something permanent. And there's yeah, so PFAS and PFOA change form, so I think that the Buddhists would probably consider them to be impermanent. But they're around forever, right? We've created something that will exist forever in one form or another. But in the Buddhist mythology, the impermanent cannot give rise to permanent and vice versa, right? So if you are something permanent, you cannot create something impermanent. You can't create it all because a permanent structure cannot change to create something. So every time you create something, you change a little. You've developed a relationship with that thing that you've created. And for something that is permanent without change, well, that's not possible, right? And the same thing, uh, an impermanent creature cannot create a permanent thing because again, you have established a relationship with it. And that relationship will change and grow depending on, on conditions that either you've created or that the creation itself will influence on the world around it. The Cheetah Matra School of Buddhism favors the idea that all external objects are illusions, um, that our perception and perceived object only arise from consciousness and are by nature impermanent, that everything will grow and change and adapt to new conditions, making any attempt to define a thing as static impossible. So let us look at a river. The river is never the same. Its course may be fairly consistent, but it is always changing. And in fact, 
what is it? The water is always different water, as you can never step in the same river twice. Yet we name it as the Mississippi, the Amazon. But what are we actually naming? Only the symbolic representation of what the river is right now. The name is a placeholder for whatever changes are happening in that loose area with the collection of aggregate changes at any one moment. We may build a bridge and tear it down. Animals may live and die in the river. The river may run dry sometimes. The river may flood and expand three or four times. Its banks may change or may disappear altogether. Yet we still call it the same name. But the name is not the thing. It is only the representation of a series of unknown relationships we must see to understand. And even then, we can't see them all. So the Chittamatra school says, what is this river we talk about? Even as you stand in the water, the relationships are changing all around you and nothing is constant. We have named something purely to define it in one sense of consciousness. So are humans less named, and plants, and animals, and all the things that ebb and flow in evolutionary time. The idea of a missing link, for example, seems a little short-sighted on this particular continuity. We are all missing links, uncreated, but creating ourselves and others all the time. And all of this is facilitated by those space particles, those things popping in and out of existence only to interact with others in a random ballet of what could be. If the interaction is synergistic, behold, a material relationship that can interact with more materials. If not, poof, the probability disintegrates and Schrodinger's cat dies in the Bronx. These are not the particles of Newtonian or Dalton's atomic theory. These are particles that do not inherently exist. They are only the probability waves of what could be depending on what exists or does not exist at the time to interact with. They are designations, placeholders for potential relationships, just as we name ourselves as placeholders for all the relationships we form and dissolve. And isn't that delightful? So here we can start thinking of the nature of the universe, specifically how it all began. As is the custom when one discusses quantum fields and particular probability functions collapsing that one probably doesn't fully understand, uh, the Dalai Lama says that he doesn't particularly buy into a single particle exploding to create the universe. Fair. He's not really an authority on astrophysics after all. But let us perform a small thought experiment. What if the particle didn't expand? What if our perception of the particle is all that's expanding? That we are still collapsing wave functions within a space particle popping in and out of existence, and we just happen to have hit a nice eddy filled with relationships to interact with. There was no expansion. The expansion is our own concept of space-time and complex relationships pushing the perception of what is the universe further and further out. We are still in the particle, and there is nothing but our own interacting sentient relationships and cause and effect reaching out to create more and more relationships with other particles and other elements of the quantum field to define the rules and conditions of our own universe. Our perception of time is not time. The idea that 13.4 billion years of a universe would mean anything is our perception of that. In Buddhism, they say that, you know, an eon is something like, I don't know, 30,000 years, 30 million years. They have these huge time scales that just stretch on forever and ever and ever. And it kind of makes you think that the idea of time itself, as space-time shows, is not really a thing. It, it seems to be just a conditional strategy for our brains to make the world understandable. 
a placeholder for chaos because we can't see what true space-time looks like. And I think this might be what the Dalai Lama is saying as he explores the idea of subtle elements and mind control through the use of elements in the final section of the chapter. So he does go into the idea of a subtle wind and um, the metaphorical elements coming together to form sentience and then break apart. It gets very complex in there, but I think what he's, the heart of it is saying, our perception of time and space is just that. It is a perception. It has nothing to do with actual time and space, which could be on a whole different dimensional understanding than, than what we're able to see. So we can see some of the relationships, but the true connections and the true relationships that govern materiality and the nature of consciousness are hidden because we are part of that dimension. We are making those relationships that we can see, but there are other relationships being made that we may not be able to see. And that's a metaphorically, then that's metaphorically represented by his use of the elements and how people who are able to step outside that perceptual boundary can have different relationships than we would accept. So the idea of uh, psychic kinetic powers and controlling the elements and magic-y stuff, right? He goes into magic-y stuff, which I won't address because I know, I don't know exactly how I feel about that. So we will, we'll leave it alone for now. Um, but he closes out the chapter, he and Venerable Children, uh, close out the chapter by discussing a Buddhist cultural legend that describes humans as made entirely of light. And here, I couldn't help but be reminded of the paradox between particle and wave that Einstein's equations made so famous, right? Is light energy or matter? Or both? Or neither? Or energy sometimes and matter other times? And doesn't that sound a lot like karmic relationships and the collapse of the wave function that defines how we create things, right? We Sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a particle. Sometimes it exists, sometimes it doesn't exist. And all those relationships are built on that karmic idea. And that we only manifested as physical things when our afflictions and coarser needs created the conditions for physical bodies to interact with the material world more definitely. In other words, we as a sentient species collapse the wave function of our light bodies to pick matter. And I just love that idea. So um, thank you very much. This will be the end of our first Y series.